0: Well, good morning, Fellowship Greenville. If you are with us today on campus or online, thanks so much for joining us. If you are a guest, thank you for worshiping with us today. Thrilled uh, to have you. Please stop by our uh, welcome center out in the lobby after the service. Or you can use the QR code on the seat in front of you and you fill out the guest card that way. But thank you so much for being our guest. By the way, I just want to take a moment and say uh, thank you. To those of you who call uh, Fellowship Greenville home, I want to thank you for intentionally inviting other people who may not have a uh, church family, they may not have a church home to join you for worship uh, here at Fellowship. Every week, it seems, new folks are joining us, and so often we hear they are here because you were intentional and invited them. So thank you. Keep doing that. As a matter of fact, let's stop and think about it for just a moment, if we could, since we're on the topic. When was the last time you invited someone that you do life with, um, that you rub shoulders with regularly, maybe I could say that you have a relational capital with, um, and you know that they don't have a church home, you know that they don't have a faith community? When was the last time you invited them to join you here. Because in doing so, I believe you would be inviting them to something that is quite remarkable. Not necessarily uh, the music or the teaching or any of the programming, although maybe they would enjoy some of that. What you would be inviting them to is a gathered time of the big C Church. When I say big church, I'm talking about Christ followers all around the globe. Coming together here at this campus, a Little C congregation, at the same place, at the same time, to worship Jesus. And here's why that's remarkable to me. It's Honestly, I'm blown away by it each time we come together. Think about it for just a moment, if you would. Apart from Jesus we would not be sitting here. He is the unifying reason that we are gathered together here today. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to take a minute. It's gonna be a bit weird, but I'm okay with that. I want you to take a minute and I want you to look around the room that you're in. Like really, go ahead. Everybody go ahead and do it, like look around. The person beside you, the person behind you. Now when you turn to the person behind you, you're just gonna see the back of everybody's head, but you're gonna get the point, like everyone looking back. To the side, right? Like look across the room, like crane your neck a little bit, take a look at them. Like actually see them, go ahead, keep doing it, it's good. Like take, take it in, take it in. Now, think about all of the differences between you and all of them. How many differences? Hundreds? Thousands if you add up people across the rooms today? Millions if you added up all Christ followers around the globe because the church of Jesus is so much bigger than Fellowship Greenville? So many differences. Yet one thing in common, and it's the one thing that has us all here today, And each Sunday, when we walk in, Jesus. It's unbelievable. Hundreds and hundreds of people with hundreds and hundreds of differences. With one thing that brings us together. Jesus Christ. I think some of us have become discouraged over the past 17 or 18 months in particular. At the realization that for many, the one thing that unites us, Jesus, has seemingly taken a back seat to the hundreds of differences. And please hear me, it's not even that differences are wrong. It's just that we often put them in the wrong place. The wrong place of importance. At times, we don't examine our heart attitude and mindset underneath our differences. And when that happens, we uh, don't look around and see what we have in common in Jesus Christ as brothers and sisters in Christ. We primarily see the differences. We see Republican, we see Democrat, we see mask, we see unmasked, we see vaccinated, we see unvaccinated, We see the social media posts that always allows us to draw a caricature of someone in our mind that we keep with us, and hundreds of other things. If you're honest, for some of you, over the last little bit in particular, when you've come together for worship as a church family, you don't first and foremost primarily see a brother or sister in Christ. You see other things. You see a political party, you see a social cause, you see a walking opinion, and listen, I can acknowledge the difficulty because it's not just you see them that way because you see them that way, it also seems for a lot of folks, they want to be seen that way. Some folks have taken pride in their difference. It's what you talk about the most. What you post about the most seems to be what you're ranting about the most. It's been equally discouraging that so many like to put Jesus with their difference, that we like to call preference, that helps us feel better about us and look down at other people and their differences. So we're Republicans with Jesus, we're Democrats with Jesus. We're masked with Jesus, we're unmasked with Jesus, we're vaccinated with Jesus, we're unvaccinated with Jesus, we're black lives matter with Jesus, we're all lives matter with Jesus. And in the midst of the church that should have Jesus in the center in his rightful place has grown preferred differences in the center with Jesus tacked on to make your difference seem better than other people's differences. And underneath the difference is an attitude of, I'm right, you're wrong. And if I'm right, you're wrong, that means I'm better and you're worse. And if I'm better, then obviously God is with me in my preferred difference. And I'll say it again, because I don't want you to hear what I'm not saying. It's not the differences are wrong. But if underneath the difference is pride selfishness, self-righteousness, God loves me and my difference more, then we are not extending the grace available to us through Jesus to others. And when we aren't extending grace, we won't fully experience the peace that is ours as the body of Christ through Jesus. But I have some great news And I hope that's encouraging to you because it's super tense in here right now with this intro, and I get it, right? Super, very quiet, super tense. Lest you be overly discouraged, we aren't the first group of people to put our differences in the wrong place with the wrong motivation. (laughs) And because of Jesus, there is grace and there is peace available to all who come to him. If you have your Bibles, I would love for you to open them up to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 this morning, because that's where we'll spend the bulk of our time. But as you turn there, I want to go back and remind you of how Paul starts this letter to the church at Ephesus. In chapter 1, verse 2, he says this. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Every time Paul took out his pen to write a letter, he either began or ended the letter with some form of that statement grace and peace. Why would he do that? Why why were those two words always together for Paul? And why did he always lead with grace and then follow with peace? Well, here's what we know. We know that grace is unmerited favor or goodness shown to someone who deserves the opposite. Grace is unconditional. We don't earn it. We talked about that last week. We receive grace because the one who loves us chooses to love us, regardless of who we are or what we've, or what we've done. Peace, though, peace refers to uh, an unhindered relationship with someone. Peace has at its core openness and transparency, the absence of conflict or the absence of division, And and I think Paul knew that grace comes before peace because an unhindered relationship, a peaceful relationship, depends upon and thrives upon grace, unmerited favor. Maybe I could say it this way. Graceful people are peaceful people. Here's what grace means. Grace means we have peace with God, right? Right? We don't have a relationship with God based on anything we've done to earn a relationship with God. Remember, our good enough isn't good enough. Think about it with me if you would. The God of the universe loves you, cherishes you, sings over you. Grace equals peace with God. Grace also equals peace with myself, and here's what I mean by that. There is nothing That you or I can do to make ourselves more significant in God's eyes. No matter what you accomplish or don't accomplish in this world. That the world defines as significant or meaningful. Changes the true value of who you are. Which means you can be at peace with yourself because of God's grace. Grace also equals peace with others. Because you are loved, because you are accepted in Christ, you need not spend another day of your life attempting to find your worth and value in what other people think about you. You know what that means? That means you don't need to spend another moment trying to one-up everyone or anyone It means you need not have rivals. It means you need, you need not lead with your differences or make your preferences your identity in this world. Grace means peace with others. But when we don't live in the reality of the grace that is afforded to us, we don't have peace, not true peace. You might have a superficial ceasefire, but not peace. It was C.S. Lewis who said, you can't get second things by putting them first. You get second things only by putting first things first. Grace, peace. And not only does Paul begin his letter of Ephesians with those two significant and meaningful words of grace and peace, but after he launches into a song of praise and a prayer for spiritual insight for the church at Ephesus, he reminds them, as we saw last Sunday in the first 10 verses of chapter two, that it's God's kindness and grace that has led to their redemption, yeah? From death to life, from in bondage to in Christ, from children of wrath to seated with Christ in the heavenly realm. Paul is reminding them, reminding us, of God's victory through Jesus over all evil powers and evil authorities of the spiritual realm. Like in chapter one, verses 20 and 21, I wanna remind you again of what Paul had said. He worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So God, through the resurrection of Jesus, has thwarted Satan's plan to enslave all of humanity, to keep captive all of the children of wrath. God, through Jesus, through grace, is moving people from death to life. And through the Spirit of God, empowering all of us that have been rescued, that have been redeemed, the church, to walk in the good works that display his grace that others may come to know him. And if you sit here today as someone who has experienced the grace of God, not only is that good news for you individually, it has ramifications for all of us as a community of Christ followers. Paul so powerfully in the verses we'll look at today reminds the church at Ephesus that not only is grace amazing, as it is, but peace comes through grace, and Jesus has made both possible, thus creating for himself one people, the church. This is what it says in Ephesians 2, verse 11. Follow along with me if you would. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So stop right there if you would. Paul wants to remind the church at Ephesus of their condition. Before Jesus, now that they are in Jesus and what that means for them, not just individually, corporately. Paul is reminding them of the many divisions that they at this time are all around. They were too once a part of the divisions, but no longer. Why? Because grace leads to peace. Look back at verse 11 with me, therefore remember it says, so we left off last week in verse 10 where Paul said, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, therefore remember. And this word remember here is the only command that you find from Paul in the first three chapters of Ephesians and what are they to Remember? That at one time, verse 11, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Paul says, I want all of you to remember that before Jesus... All of you are on the outside looking in. So Paul is writing from his Jewish perspective to the Gentiles that make up the church at Ephesus. And he is reminding them of their plight as humanity before Jesus. And what does he say here? He says that they had no sense of peoplehood because they were not a part of God's chosen people. That means they didn't belong anywhere He reminds them that they had no access to the covenant promises of God because they weren't a part of the covenant people, which meant what? It meant they were hopeless. They were without God in the world. That's strong language. You may know this. You may not know this. The Jews and the Gentiles really hated each other. The Jews knew all of these things that Paul just articulated. They they knew that those things were true, and they, they loved to rub the Gentiles' nose in it. A church historian by the name of William Barclay said it this way, the Jews had an immense contempt for the Gentiles. The Jews said the Gentiles were created by God only to be fuel for the fires of hell. God, they said, loved only Israel of all the nations he has made. It was not even lawful to render help to a Gentile mother in her hour of delivery because that would simply only bring another Gentile into the world. Until Jesus came, the Gentiles were an object of contempt to the Jews, and the barrier between them was absolute. And the hostility and the bigotry continued on and on and listen it's not just that the jews hated the gentiles the gentiles hated the jews too the gentiles considered themselves quite cultured everyone else barbarians and the jews considered themselves god's favorites everybody else was useless but the jewish people at this time well they were under the sovereign rule of rome So imagine the kind of mindset between everybody in this moment. The Jews saying to the Gentiles, you may have our country, but you will never have our God. And the Gentiles saying, don't need your God. We are dominating all of life right now, including you. What a time, what a time to be alive, right? And underneath... Their differences was sin, pride, self-righteousness. That was the issue. Look back at verse 11. When Paul says, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, and, and look at this, who are called the uncircumcision, that's a derogatory term, like calling someone a dog, who are called the uncircumcision... By the so-called circumcision, that's the Jews, and the so-called there by Paul is sarcastic in tone, right? So, we'll read it again. That at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. You see it there? Both Jew and Gentile are seen as, according to Paul, in the flesh. In other words, both groups were sinning. The cultured Gentiles worshiped many gods. While the Jews worshiped the one true God, but their pride and their prejudice had turned a relationship with God into a dead religion. There was a sinful pride and arrogance, bigotry and self-righteousness that was at the root of all the hostility. Like when you peel back the onion, that is differences, What you found was, I'm better than you. You're below me. I'm worth more than you. And the result was hostility. You guys are pretty smart, so I know that you can connect the dots here. What still sits at the heart of all division is pride, selfishness, I'm better than you. There is no peace because there is no grace. For those that are still children of wrath, sons of disobedience, those that are living according to the evil powers of this world, carrying out the inclinations of their flesh, there is division and there is hostility. Maybe I'll be super blunt here. Uh, People in all areas of life apart from Christ are following the agenda set by the passions of the flesh, set by the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan. They are under the influence of the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. May we not be so naive. As to what is actually happening day in and day out across our globe, there there is no middle ground. You are either influenced by the Spirit of God as a child of God or the Spirit that is at work in the sons of disobedience. Those are the options. So, what is Satan's game plan? Does Satan have an agenda? Yeah. He's not just waiting around. He's not in quarantine. He hasn't taken the last 17, 18 months off. I'll wait till this blows over. I need to stay here for a little while. His ultimate goal is to defame God, to deface the image of God and humanity made in the likeness of God. How's he going to do it? Through division and through hostility. In what areas of life? All of them. Race, like you see here in Ephesians 2, but it's not just race. Division and hostility within the family. Division and hostility within marriage. Division and hostility within sex. Division and hostility within gender. Division and hostility within politics. Division and hostility within denominationalism. You name it. Satan and his evil powers are in the middle of it, attempting to define it, confuse it, divide it, destroy it, And some of you go, well, Jason, this sounds real bad. Yeah. Yeah. But the so bad makes the offer of our redemption and rescue and the light of the church so beautiful. Because of Jesus, because of grace, peace is possible. God, through Jesus, has reconciled Jew and Gentile together. This is what Paul's getting at. And what's the result? The church. Let's do it for, for fun. Look around the room again. Do it. Look around. Take a look. Like, really do it. Look around. I, behind you. Side. Side. Never let this be lost on you, my friends. We are part of the miracle. This isn't just something we do on Sunday morning at 11 o'clock because we got nothing else going. It's what unifies us. All the division and all the hostility of this world. Nah. Look at what Jesus did. Paul talks about it. Look back at verse 18. He uses four metaphors. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the father. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens. But you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Verse 20 says, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord in him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for god by the spirit this is so great god's miraculous intervention has given the jew and the gentile alike a new nationhood we are god's people has given us a new bloodline the bloodline of jesus what does that mean that means we are one family He's made us a new building, indeed more a temple in which God Himself lives. It's like get I don't want you to miss what Paul's saying here. The worship center and the activity of the Old Testament transfers to God's new sanctuary, Christ's body, the church. It's unbelievable. We were without God, therefore we were without hope in this world. And God said, through Jesus, watch this. Through my grace, you will know peace, because I am peace. Go back and look at verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us of both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. Verse 16 says, and might reconcile us both to God, one body, through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace. To you who are far off, and peace to those who were near." Paul says it over and over and over again. In verse 17 it says, Jesus came and preached peace. In verse 15, we read that Jesus established peace. In verse 14, Paul says that Jesus is our peace. And it makes you recall what the prophet Isaiah said. Jesus is the prince of peace. He's killed the hostility. By the blood of Jesus, there is no more. I'm better than you. Grace not only connects us to Christ, which we saw last week in the first ten verses of chapter two. Grace also connects us to one another. Grace and peace. And it was so costly. I love the imagery used by Paul in verse 14. He says, he has broken down the dividing wall of hostility. Did you know there was an actual wall that existed in the temple in Jerusalem? The temple itself um, was built on an elevated area. You had the inner sanctuary, or the Holy of Holies, surrounded by the court of priests, and beyond this was the court of Israel, which was for men only, and then the court of the women, and all these courts were on the same level as the temple, and there were different degrees of exclusivity with each one. But some 19 steps down was the court of the Gentiles. And so if you were Greek or Roman, or anyone other than a Jew, you could show up, but you were always looking up at the temple. You couldn't approach it. You literally stood behind a stone wall, a dividing wall. So let me reread verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, has broken down in his flesh, the dividing wall of hostility. He died to tear down the wall. Through the cross, he killed the hostility. He was killed to tear down the wall of hostility. He is our peace. Author Paul Tripp says it this way, This is the good news of the gospel. Peace came, peace lived, peace died. Peace rose again. Peace reigns on your behalf. Peace indwells you by the spirit. Peace graces you with everything you need. Peace convicts, forgives, and delivers you. Peace will finish his work in you. Peace will welcome you into glory where peace will live with you in peace and righteousness forever. Peace isn't a faded dream. No, peace is real. Peace is a person. And his name is Jesus. And I believe the reason that some of us are not living in the reality of the peace that is available to us through Jesus is because we continue to spend our days attempting to put back up what he died to tear down. Visual lesson. Like a lot of us, this is just how we're living our days. Now, we call it our differences, but underneath the differences, really, just pride. I'm better than you. My difference is God's preferred difference. Yeah? So I'm a little more self righteous, a little bit better than you. If I'm better than you, then God's going to like me a little bit more. Well, Jason, I don't know if I would, well, you might not know if you would if you don't take the time to sit quietly before the Lord on a regular basis and simply ask this question. hey, Father, in a super opinionated world where everybody's got them, what's really underneath my difference? How can we, as followers of Jesus, proclaim a gospel of grace and peace to a watching world in desperate need of grace and peace when we live at odds with our brothers and sisters. It's not the difference. It's what's underneath the difference. How can we gather to sing of the grace and peace of God in our life and then walk out and articulate through our words and our posts on social media that we are better than our brothers and sisters that we just stood and sang with? How can we kneel at the foot of the cross, side by side with our brothers and sisters where grace and peace are found, where the rubble of the wall of hostility lay in ruin because of the death of Jesus, and then attempt in our arrogance to grab pieces of that wall that are nothing more than selfishness and pride and attempt to stack them back up to elevate ourselves a little bit. I love that we're closing our time together today by taking communion. Those of us who teach the Bible are usually processing through the uh, application of the text we're walking through. Like, how do we apply what we've taught? And I believe there is no better application for today's walk through Ephesians 2, 11 through 22 than to partake of the Lord's table together. You see, most often when we come to the Lord's table, we focus on the personal benefits, the spiritual blessings that have come to us through the cross of Christ. And that's right, it's proper. But there's another side to communion that we don't talk about quite as much. Think of the word communion. It breaks down into two words, common union. The Lord's table is a congregational observance. We who are in common union with Christ remember what he has done for us, not just what he's done for me or done for you. Ephesians 2 is a really cool picture. I think it's like this two-part remembrance of grace. The first part focuses on the amazing grace we received when we first trusted Christ for our salvation. But the second part, verses we looked at this morning, they focus on the peacemaking grace that has brought us together as the people of Christ. And what the gospel will never allow you to do what the gospel will never allow you to do, my friend, is to say, thank you God so much for the grace that you have shown me, but I am in no way interested in extending that to other people. The gospel won't let you do that. Paul must have had something like this in mind. who's right in the church at Corinth. In chapter 10, he said this, "The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ?" The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. There is a personal side to the Lord's Supper, but there's a communal side to it as well. And this morning as you eat the bread and drink the cup, My encouragement to you is to remember not just what Jesus has done for you in his suffering and death, but also remember and give thanks for what he has done for us. Give thanks for how we who are many are now one in Christ. We are the miracle, we are the church a community of grace, thus a community of peace. May it be so, a fellowship Greenville. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? In the quietness of your seat, I want to give you just a moment of reflection to hear from the Spirit. If you missed the elements as you were coming in this morning for communion, this would be a great time to... Go to the back of the room and pick those up. In just a moment, the worship team's gonna lead us. But I wanna give you a second to listen to the Spirit of God, to ask some questions of the Spirit about what sits underneath your differences. Is there pride? Selfishness, self-righteousness, I'm better than, surely God's in my pocket with this or with that. And for some of you this morning, just an encouragement to you, you might need to move towards a brother or sister that are a part of this church family before you partake in communion. to ask for forgiveness, to make something right. Listen well to what the Spirit is saying and then walk in step with the Spirit.